Church, your sermon text today is Psalm 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Which is no surprise to you, but our sermon text this morning is Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. As you're turning there, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and your word again and again and again in this well, this fount of truth and grace and mercy. It will never grow dry. So God, we ask that you would be with us and that you would guide us, God, that your spirit would be upon us and that you would place us under your word, that we might know you and love you and be conformed into the image of your son, that we might worship you with a greater delight and glorify you even more, God. Redeem not only our minds and our hearts, but God, all of our affections. May they be drawn to you and to your Son to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Being a younger brother of an older brother sometimes places you in a precarious position. Especially... If you're like me and your older brother is basically a walking boulder with tree trunks for legs and arms. And you're in that pesky little brother who just kind of eggs them on a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And you inevitably get what you deserve. So he'll catch you and then his big bare paws of hands, no longer hands, but their fists, and they come raining down on you in a way that an older brother will. And you know, basically the only thing that's going to stop those fists are your body or your face. And you know, your only chance of survival is just to plea for mercy and beg for forgiveness for that which you have done. And as you, you kind of get older, and as younger brother, you don't realize it, but with your older brother's happening, you see this even in your own kids, what your older brother is doing, it's not just this relief valve of anger, it's actually instructive. Like, my brother would thrash me, and then tell me, you're an idiot, don't do that. 
It was, it was one and the same. And that's what we see here in our psalm is that God is pressing down upon those who are sinning against him. And it's out of his grace. It's out of his mercy that he is doing it. So how do we as Christians, how do we properly lament over our sin? What do we do when we are lamenting over our sin, but it feels as though the hand of God, the weight of God upon us is still too much? What do we do? What's the posture of our heart in those times? If there's a plea for mercy, will, will it end? Must I keep dealing with these punishments? A chastisement for my sin. Do I have to replay this again and again and again? Will God's hand pull off of me, this hand of discipline, this hand of correction? Will it, will it ever, will there be any relief at all? Well, that's why we, that's why we delight in this song. Main idea, what I hope you're able to delight in this upcoming week is that the Lord will press you under and deliver you from your sin. Your sin and rebellion against Him, God will not let that float on by. He will press you under it and He will break you. But this very hand then that presses you down and breaks you will come and lift you up out of the ashes of weeping and out of the ashes of mourning that you might be able to delight in him. So we see this here in verses 1 through 7. We had five points, now we just have two. You should be happy. Verses 1 through 7, you see this plea of distress. The psalmist David is completely broken and he's crying out to God. So this plea of distress. And then finally in verses 8, 9, and 10, you see this deliverance by the hand of God. The very one, as we said, that is pressing him down will come, now come and deliver him and raise him up. Let's read the text here again. Verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones, my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there was no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. A little tidbit as we, as we will. How do we read the Psalms? One of you actually pointed this out to me. When you, in the beginning and in the end, realize the Psalms here, they're constructed later on this summer. We might have time to talk about the overall structure of the book of Psalms. But each chapter in itself is its own little story. So look at the beginning and then look at the end. It will... Build up, and then you have this crescendo that's building up, and then you have to, as the reader, 
go, what's happening here in the middle? What's, what's bringing him from here up to here? So look in last week's Psalm, Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. He's crying out to God. He's groaning out to God. But then you go to the end and what, is it? what happens? What is it? Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy. So what is happening in Psalm 5 that brings him from groaning and crying out to God to this rejoicing and singing to God. Right in this, this middle here, this fulcrum is this unending, steadfast love of God in the middle that's bringing him from this weeping all the way up. It's not just in five. We'll look at here in six, but go to Psalm 32. We won't be there later this summer, so we can talk about that. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's where he begins. Where does he end? Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Well, you were just talking about your sorrow, but now he's saying many are the sorrows of the wicked. Verse 10, but he who trusts in the Lord and his loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So how do you get from this up to singing about the goodness of God and the grace of God and rejoicing in him as his righteous ones? Oh, in the middle, the fulcrum, the twinge, the hinge of it all is that God is his hiding place place where he can take all things. So as we look at this in, in Psalm 6, as Justin noted, even the songs that we were singing are properly shaped on this. How do we go as we read our psalms, try to read them properly, from groaning, languishing away, asking God to deliver us, to knowing that the enemies will be cast aside and the Lord has heard our plea. What's in the middle? And that's what we'll look at. So as you're reading the Psalms, keep in mind, another tidbit, how to read them. Keep in mind, what's the beginning and what's the end? What's the journey the psalmist is taking us on? And these Psalms that we're looking at right now is lament. About a third of them, just like your life, Probably a third of your days, you're lamenting it. A third of the Psalms, roughly, are laments. Properly, they're laments. Under this, this umbrella of lamenting Psalms, of which there's 50 of them, we have the imprecatory Psalms, kind of a little subset. We'll get there a little bit. That's where you have the dash their children upon the stones and not just cast my enemies aside, but break them. Those psalms are under, those imprecatory psalms are under the lament. And now we're in this kind of penitential songs. There's six of them. Psalm 6, uh, Psalm 51, 120, 138, and, and 43. Uh, yeah, 51. And the, they're written by David, usually. And they take us on this beautiful journey of what do we do with our sin? How do I respond with my sin? So the 
Church of England will use them. This is what you'll sing in the Church of England during the season of Lent, when you're focused heavily upon your sin and the deliverance that comes through Christ. They sing these psalms again and again, these, these uh, penitential psalms. So how do you respond when you're in sin? If any of you didn't sin this week, you're okay. If any of you did, look at verse 1. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The psalmist here is right in understanding that he deserves to be rebuked. He deserves it. But he cries out to the Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't let your anger be the, the fountain from which all of this rebuke and this chastisement is coming. This is an impassioned plea from a troubled man, one of the commentators wrote. And the hand of God is pressing upon him. And from, from our vantage point, maybe perhaps you kind of go, yeah, that's, that's a bit much, isn't it? God, really? Like, isn't, this, isn't this a little too heavy? But we have this, this rebuke that's being pressed upon him. And it's not just only him, but whole nations. The purpose of this is kind of two. One is a prefigure of judgment that will, to come, that will come to those who don't repent. So you see this throughout some of the Psalms and then many of the prophets as well. The Moabites. The, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, that sometimes you see the hand of God press against them and you, and you can read about it and you know that is light to what is to come. And then there's another where God's hand is pressing down upon not his enemies, but his own people, his own children. And it's designed to purify you. Psalm 94, 12 says, Blessed is the man Blessed is a man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. You're blessed. You're in a state of blessedness. That God would press his, hand, press his hand against you when you sin against him. The chaff being separated from the wheat is not a pleasant thing at all. When we were when living in Nepal, they didn't have a lot of machinery, so they'd cut the wheat, and then they would just throw it in the road... And people would drive over it again and again. And then you kind of sweep it aside. And then you wait for the cars to kind of go. And you stop them. And then you sweep up your weed. And then that, there you go. And sometimes that's what God is doing in your life. In response to your sin, he's just driving over you again and again and again and again. And it's painful. Absolutely. But that's what's needed. God will press you to purify you. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Beginning in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time. I seemed best to them. But he disciplines us. Why does he discipline us? Why does his hand press against us? He disciplines us for his good. That we might share in his holiness. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful. You're getting driven over as a chaff is being separated from you, the kernel of wheat. All the discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. It's a God's grace to you, to press against you, to purify you, and make you into his image. So then the, the psalmist is crying out, don't turn back, God, don't do this. And, and for him to turn back, he's asking the Lord to turn to him later, but for him to turn back in this and to avoid it, is, is to work against God's means of salvation and sanctification in his own life. Rebuke me, absolutely. Discipline me, absolutely. P please, God, don't do it in your anger. Please, God, don't do it in your wrath. Side note to parents. Be ever careful how you discipline your children. Discipline them, absolutely. Rebuke them, absolutely. Let it never come from the fount of anger and wrath. Lest you misimage their heavenly father. Discipline them as it is a means of God's grace that you would be there to discipline them. Do that. Don't do it in anger. Don't do it in wrath. Back to the psalm. David's crying out that it wouldn't be out of the anger. He sees how heavy that it is pressing upon him. And you can see this, this wrestling and turmoil within his soul. He knows that the, the discipline is good. The, the, the rebuke is good. But he, God, is this coming from your anger? Is this coming from your wrath? I see my whole life is coming undone. As Jeremiah says, correct me in chapter 10, verse 24. Correct me, O Lord. But with your justice... Not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Let me just say this. Uh, if you are in sin, meaning if you're alive, and you do not feel this weight of God's hand pressing against you, you are in a precarious position. You calloused heart and might think that as though you're getting away with it a little bit. But no, in our sin, if this is not a response when we are in sin, if we do not have the wind of God, the weight of God, pressing against us, subduing us to the point where we think we're going to be undone, be fearful. It is a grace of God that he would do this to you. You're not getting away with your sin if your calloused heart doesn't feel this pressing of God against you. So notice his relationship to his sin is that he's lamenting over it. He's lamenting over his sin. An open awareness of it. He's not explaining it away. Like we now it's become popular, this non-apology kind of apology, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you were offended or I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry that you uh, took it that way. And we move around, we kind of shift around this true lament of sin. We don't wrestle with it. First two. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. This, this languishing, this idea of a, a 
like a plant drooping over, like the flowers I killed outside by not watering them over these last two weeks. They're, they're drooping over. Isaiah 24 is just God's judgment is, is coming on the, their fields, their, their vineyards are even kind of this languishing is the idea that the psalmist is using. It's also used in Isaiah 16 where the fields of Hesperon are the Moabites are withering away. And here's the psalmist then whose body is just wilting, withering away under the hand of God, the gracious hand of God. And then in the midst of this distress, he cries out to the Lord, be gracious to me, be gracious to me, O Lord. So weep over your sins, but never let that be the end of it. Cry to God that he would never, ever turn his face from you. Plead with him, as the psalmist does. Plead with God that he would be gracious to you. Even though this is entirely undeserved. But plead for him. As the, as the gladiator who is subdued. And all he can do is look to the emperor and plead for mercy. That's what we have here with the psalmist. I'm, I'm, I'm undone. Heal me, he cries out, for my bones are troubled. Isn't genuine sorrow over sin to the degree that his, his body itself is feeling the troubles of this? He's not just superficially, but his bones as well, deep down in him, are wasting away. In verse 3, then here you have, my soul is also, not just my body, but now my soul. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how, how long? So now the hand of God is pressing against, not just physically is he wasting away, but now, now even his soul is too much. The Semitist linguist, he writes, his soul is even still more shaken. His soul is still more shaken than his body. The affliction is therefore not merely bodily ailment in which a, a weaker man might lose his heart, but God's love is hidden from him. And God's wrath seems as though it would wear him completely away. It is an affliction beyond all other afflictions. So it makes sense that the psalmist here would be wondering and crying out, God, how long? And these dark nights of the soul, they're the longest. We linger. We linger when the times are good. We don't want it to end. Case in point, or like, it takes us two hours to get out of this building every Sunday. You just kind of linger when the times are good. But a great deal of impatience then comes upon us when we're in sorrow, or when we feel the hand of God pressing against us. How long? How long will God allow this to happen? Don't be impatient. 
with the purifying work of God that is upon you. Let it simmer. Let it linger. Though you will be undone unless he relents, you cannot press the hand against you. Pressing against this hand will just drive you further down. But you can cry out to him. Verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Here it seems as though God has become so distant to the psalmist that, that he's departed. But he's crying out to him. Don't be, don't be so far away. Don't go away so far. Turn, O Lord. Turn, turn, come back. Don't turn away. Come back to me. Come back to me. Don't let me languish away here. I don't need anyone else. I just need you, Lord. Everyone else can surround me, but I, I don't much care. I just need you. I just want you. And I'm alone unless you are willing to turn here and be with me. I'm under your hand of judgment, God, and therefore it's only by your hand and it's you that I need to bring me through this valley that you have placed me in. But what are the grounds? Look at the verse, verse 4. What are the grounds of, of his plea to God? What does he build it upon? What is it? It's, it's nothing less than this steadfast, enduring, never-ending love of God to his people, to his covenant people, that this promise will endure, that he will not leave his people, that he will not forsake them, but he will always have them. It can be, it can be translated for the sake of, or on account of, or because of. God, because of your never-ending, because of your steadfast love towards your people, don't, don't turn away. Yes, break me, God. Rebuke me, discipline me, but don't turn away. I can take your rebuke, I can take your correction as long as I have you. But don't turn away. Don't leave me here. It's like Exodus 32. When the, the God is so good to them, delivers them out of sin, delivers them out of Egypt... They go to Mount Sinai, they say, no, we don't want to go up. You go up for us. Oh, and by the way, while you're up there, I know you just told us not to make any idols for ourselves, but we're going to make this wonderful golden calf. And then Moses' plea is this same thing. God says, I'm going to destroy all of them, and then I'm just going to start with you. And make a whole nother nation. I can do that. And Moses makes the same plea. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and 
Israel, Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said, I will multiply you and your descendants as the stars in the heaven and, and all of this land which I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the people which he said he would bring harm to them. Same thing. Moses is pleading with them, God, remember your covenant. Remember your steadfast love. Remember your promises to your people. This is David, the psalmist. He's pulling out of that saying, God, remember your love to your, to your people. Yes, we deserve it. Yes, I deserve it. But God, on account of your steadfast love, do not let this continue or I will be completely, completely undone. Here's the thing, though. We, we only deserve the rebuking. The, the fact that we can call upon the steadfast love of God is, is remarkable. It's beyond any of our comprehension. How gracious of God, how good of God, that though he would discipline you, you can cry out to him. And you're not going to like, argue him into some box. No, it's all according to his will, but that you can call out to him and say, God, remember your love for your people. I know this is for your good. I know this is for your glory, but remember. So when you are crying out to God, never build it upon your own goodness or a notion that you deserve something, but build it upon the goodness of God and his promises to his people. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The churchyards are silent, Spurgeon says. The churchyards are silent places, and the vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. The dead, those in the grave, they can't praise you, God. Are you going to press me down so much that, I completely, that I'm completely undone? How will I praise you? God, I want to praise you. Verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I wish this was all of us. When we just get a glimpse of our depravity. It's a mercy of God that we would not stay in this state all the time. Moaning and crying and weeping. Eyes wasting away because of grief. Some of us need to simmer here for a little while. Has this, ever been, has this ever been the state of your soul? That you would be so completely undone that you are weeping, not just because of the consequences of sin, but because of the sin itself. That that would drive you towards weeping, that you've offended God who created you and everything around you. Stay there for a while. It's not an enviable place. It really isn't. 
for those of you who have gone through this dark night of the soul. It's not enviable, but as you go through it and you come out on the other side, by the grace of God, you know you wouldn't exchange it for anything. It's a mark of God's grace. So our psalmist, before we move on to the end here, our psalmist, he's just served everything he's gotten. He's sinned against God. The context is likely Bathsheba. In the murder of Uriah, as David is in these penitential songs, lamenting that. And he deserves everything he's getting. But from the, this broken position of languishing, he's crying out to God. And he's building this cry and plea out to God upon the sure mercies of God and upon the grace of God. And his body is wasting away and his eyes are weak. But he has hope. So with that in mind, let's go here and read up the rest of our verses, 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. For the people of God, for the people of God, the wrath of God is always seasoned with grace. A sweet refreshment it is after, after a bitter meal is the grace of God. And you've seen it in your own life enough that you instinctively knew this is how good God is to you. You instinctively knew this was going to be the conclusion of this psalm. How good has God been to you over the years that you can read about his languishing and lamenting over his sin and you know God won't leave him there. So we have this, what do we do here? With the workers of evil, you see it throughout all the rest, so many of the Psalms. What do we do with these workers of evil? So David's lamenting over his sin, and then all of a sudden it's, get away from me, you workers of evil. What? Like, how does that fit in? So a couple of options. One, maybe they're just his, his personal enemies. David's the king, we think. And so um, he's got all of these personal enemies that are always around him. Like in Psalm 41, it says... As for me, I say, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And so we think of these workers of evil, these enemies. Are these like the, the personal enemies of David? I think there's something else going on, though. Psalm 1 and 2 are introductory psalms. And they set the framework and the trajectory through which we interpret all of the rest of the Psalms. And so who are the enemies of God in, in this Psalm 1 and 2? I think there's something cosmic happening here, to be honest. So why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. So here you see the enemies are those, it's it's picture of this cosmic battle that's happening. 
That's how David can so quickly introduce them in. So you see this in your own life. Maybe you don't have enemies. Nobody at the gate of your house who's wanting to kill you. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. When you are languishing and God has you broken and he's pressing you right to the edge of complete destruction by his gracious hand. Those who are ungodly around you, what do they end up doing? They end up finishing your thoughts almost. So you take it a little step like, God, are you really there? And they finish the thought and they go, no, God doesn't exist. Or you, you begin to think, God, are you, are you really, but you can't finish it. But you half wonder, are you really good with this going on? But the ungodly around you, maybe even your family, We'll finish that thought and say, no, see, God doesn't exist. No, don't you see that God is not good to you? Why would he let this happen to you if he's not good? So you have these enemies here. There's something cosmically happening here. It's not just about us and enemies. No, I don't have enemies, so it doesn't apply to me. No, it's not really about you. <laughs> There's something else that's happening. So it's the turning point. The hinge here is the steadfast love of God. And in verse 9, that the Lord has heard my plea and the Lord accepts my prayer. You don't need restoration. You don't need that. That's not your hope. Your hope is that God would hear your prayer. That's your hope. That's your foundation. That's your joy. Your hope is not that God would restore all things to you. The foundation of your hope is the steadfast, sure love of God. How do you see Christ here in this? John 10. You can turn there. John 10. He pulls on this psalm. John 12, we haven't been in there in like two weeks since we've been in John. And um, chapter 12 makes the turn. And we're focusing now directly upon the cross. And all of these years from eternity past, it begins in John 1. And now it just, everything slows down. And these last chapters are just on this last week. Verse 27. Now my soul has become greatly troubled. Christ is pulling off of this song. Now my soul has become greatly troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. My soul is greatly troubled, the psalmist writes. But you, O oh Lord, how long? This is the cry of the Messiah. Who's it the one that was truly languishing? David, a little bit, truly pointing towards something else, the Messiah. This is where your hope is in all of this. It's not that God helped out David, this king from 1000 BC. No, no, no. That's not your hope. Your hope is that Christ was the one who was languishing. Christ is the one whose bones were in trouble. That Christ was the one who called out to his father. 
turn and deliver my life. Christ was the one who was weary with moaning and who was wasting away. Christ is the one that was growing weak. But Christ is the one whose father has heard his plea and accepted his prayer. And Christ is the one whose all of his enemies have been pushed aside. So brother and sister, this is your hope. Not that David was helped. Sure, that's helpful. That's nice. But that Christ, God's unending love was manifest to you through Christ. All through Christ. Briefly, what do we do with this? Number one, weep over your sin. Weep, languish over your sin. Alfred Edersheim, our favorite uh, Messianic Jew of the, sorry, our favorite Messianic Jew of the, of the 19th century, not, not of the 21st century. Alfred Edersheim, he's, he writes this history of the Jewish people, and he's going through the, the kings, and he writes, those who don't weep over their sin, those who don't weep over their sin, will weep over the consequences of them. We languish over the consequences and we miss it entirely. Even, even our lamenting is selfish. How wretched are we? We lament that we're in a marriage heading towards a divorce, but we don't repent over the 10, 15, 20 years of selfishness. We lament that our, our wives will not be vulnerable to us but we don't repent of the pornography that put them in that position. When's the last time you lamented and wept over your sin? Not just the consequences of it. Your life is a disaster. Okay. Weep over your sin, not your circumstances. Weep over your sin. Number two, go beyond. Don't stay there. Wretched man that I am, Paul writes, who will save me from this body of death? It doesn't end there. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Weep over your sin. Yes, wrestle with it. Feel the hand of God pressing against you. Don't dodge it. But then through Christ, and only through Christ, don't stay there. There therefore is now no condemnation. This is the hope that we have in Christ. We should all feel the weight of this condemnation. But through Christ and through Christ alone, you have this hope. That therefore, therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What delight! It makes the weeping seem so... Short and really, we thought it was going to be the end of us, but now we just hear, oh, that yeah, there was a bad season in life, and God delivered me through it according to His grace. Praise be to God. So weep over your sin, but move beyond it, and then finally, proclaim this goodness of God. 
Here's the psalmist singing out this psalm. The people of God singing out this psalm about the goodness of God to deliver them from the hand of God's own judgment. Proclaim the goodness of God. Have it be upon your lips continually. How can we not sing about the goodness of God who would deliver us from our own sin? Who wouldn't leave us languishing away? Oh, that's a good God who loves his people. And the people of God have been able to sing this song for millennia and know that God is faithful and true. You, we worship a very, very good God. So weep over your sin. Move beyond it and proclaim the goodness and the redeeming work of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your work in our lives. We ask that you would continue to work in us, God. If we do not feel the weight of our own sin, God, break us. And let us not weep over the effects of our sin or the results of our sin, but God, let us weep over the fact that we have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you, our creator. And when we are broken, God, let us simmer there until we are completely broken. But God, when we are, may we cling to the hope that we have in Christ the manifestation of your sure and steadfast love towards your people. May we cling to him as he draws us up out of the ashes and cleans us up and clothes us in robes of righteousness. God, may we sing forever his praises and his glory. Amen. Amen.